Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, dear Christian friends. Where in your life right now do you feel torn? Wedged between the proverbial rock and, and a hard place. You're faced with decisions after decisions each and every day. And, and I'm not just talking about the trivial ones. What are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? But, but those decisions that we're faced with that seem like there's not a good option and yet it's unavoidable, you have to make a choice. Think of as many families are getting back to school, families with little children, and, and you have different situations, of course, across the board. And in one, one place, you have two parents that work, and they're not able to be home with their child, so online learning is less than ideal. Or, or maybe one parent is at home but has the self-awareness to realize they're not cut out for helping their child with online learning. But at the same time, they're not yet comfortable sending their, their child to in-person class. And learning as well. A rock in a hard place. Uh, as all of the national election, uh, all of the, the, the rhetoric ramps up and we're reminded once again that there's no such thing as an ideal or a perfect candidate and often feels we're choosing between the lesser of two evils. Do you go for policy, personality, some other factor that you're weighing in? Maybe these last five months have taken their toll on you financially and so your challenge, you're torn between do I dip into the retirement fund to make ends meet at this point or do I have to get another job or a different job? Or your health has, has taken its toll, it's failing and you're at the point where you, you need to make a serious decision to either change your lifestyle or your diet or, or face surgery or just ongoing medication for the rest of your life. We know what it's like to be torn, to be stuck in that position of be feeling like we're between a rock and a hard place. There's a vivid picture, perhaps no more vivid than the one in our first lesson today. The picture of the Israelites uh, and, and facing that rock and the hard place of the Egyptian army facing them down in the Red Sea on the other side. The ten plagues had taken their toll on Pharaoh as well. And, and finally, he allowed the, the Israelites to leave. In fact, he, he didn't just allow it. He begged them to go, finally, get, get out of there. But of course, as the lesson we heard today, as it reminded us in, in a shocking twist that, well, was really neither shocking nor much of a twist, Pharaoh flip-flopped once again and changed his mind, had his army pursue the Israelites. And there they were, stuck, looking one way and seeing an imposing army chasing them down and the other nowhere to go as the Red Sea was right there before them. As, as if they could relate to Odysseus having to make that, that choice, Scylla or Charybdis, as he was trying to navigate through the waters in his boat. Neither one is a good option, but you have to choose one. So what did the Israelites do in that situation? Well, it sounds like at first we could commend them because they cried out to the Lord. It seemed like anyways. We're told in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. We'd give them good marks except for what follows seems to indicate that their crying out to the Lord was either not very genuine or certainly not patient enough for the Lord to deliver them because immediately after there, they lashed out at Moses. In verse 11 and following, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? 
Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So, after the Lord didn't deliver them in in apparently the 15 seconds that they expected him to do so, then they lashed out at, at Moses. And they, they recognized, or I suppose they were exposed for their, their lack of trust in the Lord. And Moses gives a, a brilliant response as God's leader, demonstrating that, that God actually carried out his promise that he gave to Moses when he called him to lead his people out of Israel, that the Lord would provide him with everything he needed to lead. And this was the response that, that Moses gave. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. A godly response, if if we've ever heard one. And yet, we could understand being the Israelites listening to Moses who's telling them not to be afraid, uh, how, how absurd that would have sounded to them because from a human perspective, their fear was very warranted to see the Egyptian army in the sea and to realize there's, there's no way out and for Moses to be this, this leader that seems aloof and, and disconnected from the gravity of the situation by saying, hey, don't be afraid. But undoubtedly, he grabbed their attention with what he told them next when he explained to them, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. It must have meant some kind of divine intervention for sure. And yet probably the most difficult part to grasp of Moses' words there, his response to the Israelites in this situation, was the last phrase, the Lord will fight for you, just stand still. Just stand still. It seems so counterintuitive. You don't need us to put together a battle plan. You don't want us to pick up our weapons or sharpen our swords. Just stand still. It makes sense fighting. We get it. But, but how does one fight while standing still? It, it just is so backwards to our way of thinking. It would be like your personal trainer saying, hey, let me remind you, don't forget to get your steps in today while you're sitting on the couch. All day, Or your doctor saying, hey, practice good hygiene by making sure that you don't wash your hands all day long. See, we expect for a certain thing to play out that action has to precede it. You do this, and then this is what happens. But for Moses to say, just stand still, the Lord will fight, seemed counterintuitive. I wonder if it would have been a little bit more plausible, a little easier for the Israelites to, to take Moses' word if he had directed them to to just do something. As insurmountable or as absurd as it would have been for them to take up their weapons and try to do battle against the Egyptians or or to try and and cross the Red Sea on their own, at least there was action that was being taken. And so somehow it makes more sense. It's, It's easier to swallow for God to work through action than it is to just stand still and do nothing. That's what what seems to be the logical conclusion for for things to play out. We've got to do something, don't we? There's there's some sort of action or behavior required on on our part. 
But what's interesting is as you look at the records that are recorded for us in Scripture, uh, time and again, what happens as God's people take matters into their own hands and insist on taking action to, to help God out? It doesn't play out very well, does it? Think of Abraham lying about his, his wife and calling her his sister. And sleeping with his servant. Think of Rachel and, and, and Jacob deceiving Isaac. Think of Saul authorizing or offering up rather an unauthorized sacrifice. None of those situations played out very well when God's people insisted on taking action. And not only did they not play out well as if God needed their help, but it always in each case involved sin as well. God was was using this opportunity where the Israelites were between a rock and a hard place to teach them something foundational about their relationship with him. It would still be a while that they would be wandering in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. So understanding this would be extremely beneficial to them. And and that simple foundational truth is this. God was more interested in their trust than their tasks. God didn't need their action first or their behavior first. God wanted first and foremost their belief, their trust in him, that he could actually do what he told them he was going to do. And it shows that they struggled with this because, remember, as they, as they lashed into Moses, they were expressing that if only they had done the right thing, stayed in Egypt, then they would have avoided all of these problems. No room for God, really, in that picture. But if we had done the same thing and stayed in Egypt, then we wouldn't be where we're at today. That kind of, of thinking is, is oftentimes how we operate as well, isn't it? We have it backwards. We think tasks, then trust. We act, we do, we try to address and fix things first, and then after we've done everything that we can, and then if it seems manageable, then we can kind of sit back and play it safe and then say, okay, now I'll I'll trust in the Lord to take care of this. But the really big things, the really really obvious things that, that are so beyond God that he couldn't possibly handle without our help, we insist on taking action first, and then we'll then we'll see if it's worth trusting him after. Think about how so many are responding and have been and continue to respond to this virus. That's a great example of the balance between task or action and and trust in God. Don't so many of us have it backwards? So long as I do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, then I'll trust that God can protect me from it. If I cocoon myself and quarantine in my house, never to leave, and if everybody wears a mask, and if I disinfect everything and always wash my hands and always stay six feet away and avoid every grocery store and stay away from people for the rest of my life, then then I'll trust that God can protect me from this. But if I were to, to go out into public, if I were to be around people, if I were to do any of that, well, that's, that's too risky and there's no way God could protect me in those scenarios. And I'm not saying don't take precautions. Always be smart. But also, don't have it backwards. And don't insist that we must act first before placing our trust in God. Because I'll ask you to to reflect for a moment and think, 
when we operate that way in our lives, when we insist on, on taking action or, or doing something first and then placing our trust in God, when we operate that way, in whom are we really placing our trust? God or ourselves? What are we really saying when I have to take action first and only after I have done everything I possibly can, then almost with my leftovers, I'll throw God a little bit of trust. Or I'll only actually believe that he can keep his promise if it's realistic. See, it's, it's so important for us to understand this right relationship and, and to prioritize it the way that God wants us to trust and then tasks. Because what does that show? It reminds us that we aren't in control. But the kicker is that that is not actually a bad thing to be reminded that God is the one who is in control. Not you, not me. To be able to step back and to be able to not be governed by fear our whole lives and act as if everything in our lives in order for God to really function or be involved in our lives requires me first doing and acting before I can trust. Trusting him first is a clear-cut reminder that he is always in control. And it takes me back to his promises that he is always going to work things out for my good. It's important, but it's also a challenge, isn't it? You know why it's a challenge is because our vision is so bad. You might remember, uh, I don't know how many years ago, probably far longer than I, I remember, um, but the, the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Kevin Costner plays Robin Hood. There's a, a scene that has always stuck with me, a humorous scene where he's on the wall with his friend Akeem, and they're watching the enemy drawing near on the hillside, and Akeem has a telescope, which he is familiar with, but Kevin Costner's Robin Hood obviously had never used one. And so he takes this telescope, and he looks through the telescope, and, and he immediately pulls out his sword because it looks to him like the enemy is right in front of him. And he realizes as he pulls the telescope down that the, the enemy is still quite a ways away. That too often is how we look at problems challenges, adversity in life. As if we're looking at them through a telescope and they seem larger than life, they seem big and huge and insurmountable. And not only that, but when you're looking through a telescope, when you're focusing, that's all you see is the problem itself. So of course it looks larger than life. Of course it looks like we're never going to be able to overcome it. It also keeps us then, as we're focusing on the problem, from keying in on the solution and looking to, to God for deliverance. See, that's the, the bigger problem, isn't it? There's an entirely different way to, to view things the way that the Israelites were between a rock and a hard place, between uh, soldiers and a sea. To look either way and say they're doomed, they have no chance, or to look each way and say, here's two ways that I cannot wait to see how the Lord is going to deliver us from. Two problems, two challenges, two, two adversities in, in this life, and, and I know that God is going to deliver, so when he says stand still, I can't wait to see how he's going to do just that. And how did God deliver? 
Well, that was recorded for us in Exodus 22 as well. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Oh, that's right. I guess the Lord doesn't really need our help in bringing us through problems and challenges. And not only that, you notice in this account that, that he didn't just address one or the other issue. He didn't just say, all right, well, we'll deal with, with Pharaoh and his army, or we'll deal with the sea, but he killed two birds with, with one stone. He took care of them both. He gave them a path through the sea and also took care of the Egyptian army so that the Israelites would never have to worry or fret about whether they were still chasing them or hunting them down. God didn't need his people to take action. He didn't need their tasks. He simply wanted their trust. And what did the Israelites see when they looked back in the aftermath of all of this? We're told, verse 30, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. So they looked back and saw this clear reminder. There wasn't any question about whether the Egyptians rather had survived. They saw the dead bodies. They saw deliverance. God made good on his promise. Moses said to, to tell the people, just let the Lord fight for you. Stand still and trust that he will. And, and how powerful an impact, an exclamation point on that promise must it have been to see the dead bodies of, of the soldiers, the army, on the shore of, of the sea that they had just crossed. Do you suppose that as they saw those bodies, they didn't think only of deliverance, but perhaps of something else? Judgment? Remember that Pharaoh made no bones. He didn't try to hide the fact that he, he wanted nothing to do. He had no time for the Lord. And, and in that picture of judgment, God reminded the Israelites, anybody who fails to, to humble himself before me, to submit before me and acknowledge who I am, this is the judgment they will face. And not only that, for their arrogance uh, facing that judgment, do you think that it struck the Israelites at all? that those bodies could just as easily have been theirs? Remember, it wasn't too long ago that they were arrogantly arguing, complaining, grumbling against Moses, defiant against his call to, to trust in the Lord. How easily couldn't God have just swallowed them up and collapsed the walls of the sea on them in judgment for their defiance? But he didn't. In his grace, he delivered them, but also demonstrated a clear judgment for those who reject him. Do we see the same thing when we look to the cross? As we stand there and see our Savior suspended, we see deliverance. 
We see the one who, who was crucified to pay for our sins. And because he was, we have been delivered. Our sins have been paid for. We have been declared not guilty, free from any long-term eternal consequence of our sins. And we also see judgment. We see God carrying out his judgment against sin. It's just that he chose to carry that judgment out against his son instead of you and me. And he just as easily could have and had every right to for the times that we fail to trust in him or insist in putting our tasks, our action before trust or defiantly ignoring him and rejecting him as the Egyptians did. We deserve that judgment, but God placed it on his son and at the same time that that most beautiful paradox is deliverance. Judgment, deliverance, all wrapped up in one on the cross for you, for me, for everyone. It isn't without effect, is it? Each and every time the Lord takes us to the cross over and over and we see judgment, but more importantly, we see deliverance, our deliverance, that changes things the next time we have a challenge in our lives. Adversity, problems, uh, when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. We are weaned away from our insistence on acting first and trusting after, and instead we, we trust first and then act. Instead, over time, we actually start to believe it and not just say it, but to believe it and to trust it God's got this. So where are you Are you torn in life right now? Where do you feel that burden of being stuck and, and there's no way out, there's, there's no good decision? Try that. Instead of insisting that you first have to take action to minimize the problem into a manageable way for God to, to deliver you, Start by simply trusting first. And then stand still and watch and see how the Lord will deliver you. Amen.